0: Mark chapter 2, we will run into chapter 3 this morning and uh, get through verse 6 of chapter 3. My Grandpa Wagoner is a treasure trove of colorful expressions, and maybe you have somebody like that in your life as well, because if it weren't for him, I'd have no idea what a gully washer is or a toad strangler, but... He, he had all these little expressions, these little phrases, things that I don't know where he got them or where he came up with them. But we used to play a little game, and part of the game was uh, called Grandpa Says. And we would uh, have some phrase that he used, and we would try and figure out exactly what it meant. And I still don't really understand what it means when he says, I'm mad enough to eat a banana. I'm not sure what about being angry makes you want to eat a banana. Or, or here's another one I don't understand. Do you live around here, or do you ride a bicycle? I'm not sure why, what the connection is between those, but chances are you grew up hearing some of those type of expressions, things like, oh, he's as mad as a wet hen, or uh, get your ducks in a row, something like that. Let's be honest, does anybody here really know what a hissy fit is? What, I mean, what, what is a hissy fit? But these colloquial phrases and expressions kind of add color to what would otherwise be dull information. Well, in Matthew 23, Jesus uses a rather vivid expression. Referring to the Pharisees, he says, you strain a gnat and you swallow a camel. And on first reading, you probably might say, what? What does that even mean? But in its context, it's pretty plain. The Pharisees majored on the minors and minored on the majors. They made a big deal out of things that weren't. And they missed the things that were a big deal. They strained the gnat of law keeping. And again, that picture is so vivid. You know, here they are trying to kind of get every last drop out of a gnat. And that's what they did with keeping of the law. In an instant, they could tell you exactly what you could or could not do on the Sabbath. They had all those laws memorized, and yet they missed what the law was for mercy, compassion. The love of God was far from their hearts. They had memorized the scriptures. They had memorized the laws in Leviticus, but they apparently had never learned Micah 6.8, which says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Now, the Pharisees weren't solely guilty of this, but by the time of the New Testament, by the time of Jesus The Old Testament law was seen by many people as a way of receiving approval, the approval of God. Uh, By keeping the law, someone became righteous. That was the thought. Therefore, you had to be meticulous about keeping the law, right? I mean, if you're going to be righteous based upon how well you kept the law, you better make sure you crossed all your T's and dotted all of your I's, because otherwise you may not be approved, Spirituality thus became entirely about performance rather than about the heart. Did you do the right things? And sadly, even those under the banner of Christ have fallen into this pharisaical error. As you well know, there are far too many churches in our world who are more about rules than about grace. People walk around in these churches with a perpetual scowl, always looking for something to correct in somebody else. They judge others on the length of their hair, on the length of their skirt. They don't look and act, and and anyone who doesn't look and act like them are not welcome. Now, I'm not against ethical standards, of course. You know, the Bible is very clear that we're to walk and live in a certain way that reflects Christ, to be in obedience to him, be different from the world. And yet there's a problem with legalism is that it's as much an attitude as it is a system. The legalistic religion falls short of the gospel. And in a word, that's what's the problem. It falls short of the gospel. It replaces grace with law. Now, the Pharisees represent a textbook example of legalistic religion. And though they loved the Old Testament law, their their system represented a strict legalistic approach to worship and spiritual service. They may have outwardly agreed with Jesus that, yes, Loving God and loving your neighbor is the essence of the law. But when it came down to it, the love of God was far from their hearts. The Pharisees consistently clashed with Jesus all throughout his ministry, particularly here as we've been studying in Mark chapter 2. This whole chapter has just been one incident after another in which the Pharisees have been on Jesus' case for this or that, perceived violations of their tradition. Jesus in turn, expresses love and compassion, two characteristics often lacking from legalistic religion. Jesus didn't bend to their demands. Instead, he exposed their hypocrisy and told the truth. Now, this morning, we're going to finish Mark chapter 2 and and launch into chapter 3. There are two separate events that are described here, but they both have the same core element. Both are about Sabbath day controversies. Jesus does something that violates, in the Pharisees' mind, what God intended for the Sabbath. Jesus, of course, defends himself and shows that he, in fact, is Lord of the Sabbath. But the Sabbath is one of the most carefully guarded of the Pharisees' laws. More than any other law in the Old Testament, they had built all of these traditions and regulations and rules about the Sabbath. And when Jesus doesn't conform to their tradition, they find him guilty. So as we look at these two accounts back to back in chapter 2 and 3, I'd like to point out five problems with legalistic religion, five problems that we can identify, I think, in these texts. Number one, legalistic religion is obsessed with fault-finding. Legalistic religion is obsessed with fault-finding. You know, when religion is boiled down to do the right things, keep the rules, it could hardly be any other way. Those who believe themselves to be righteous feel it necessary to always be on the lookout for others who might not be keeping those rules. If you've ever been around or belong to a legalistic type church or environment, you know how this is. You're always kind of looking over your shoulder. You're always kind of wondering, "Um, can I do this? Is this approved? You know, and legalistic religion by its very definition is always looking for faults Uh, take a look at this in verse 23 now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the sabbath and as they went his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain the pharisees said to him look why do they do what is not lawful on the sabbath so the timing of this incident here is not stated other than the fact that it happens on the sabbath Uh, Presumably it happened in the springtime when the grain harvest was coming up and the grain was, uh, the heads of grain were there on the stalks. So it's probably in the springtime. Jesus and his disciples, the Bible says, are walking through the grain fields. Again, this was probably a pedestrian path, like just a trail, and it, on either side, was bordered by grain fields. So it's not like they were just walking through somebody's field. They were probably walking along an established path with grain on either side. And while they're doing this, the disciples reach out and take some of the heads of grain. Now, you might say, well, isn't that stealing? Isn't that a violation of God's commandments? Well, it wasn't stealing because the Old Testament law explicitly condoned this practice. Deuteronomy twenty three twenty five it says, When you come to your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hands, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, if you go buy a grain field, you can take a little for yourself. That's okay. But don't go harvesting your neighbor's field. Again, what they're doing here is not is not trying to steal, you know, try and uh, bum a free meal off of somebody. It was more of a just a snack as they went. Um, just like on the kibbutz where I lived, we had a little orange tree that grew, and it belonged to the kibbutz. But, you know, pretty much anybody could walk by, and, uh, man, those were some of the best oranges I've ever had right off, right picked off the tree. Um, and that's what you do. You know, you go past and pick one down. We also had date palms on the kibbutz. And so we would eat dates fresh from the trees. It was, it was great. But that's what they're doing here. And how it would work is you'd pull off one of these heads of grain. You would take it in your hands and you'd rub it back and forth. And it would crush and crack open the husk of the grain. Then you'd open your palm like this and then you'd blow into your hands And that would disperse the chaff. And what would be left in your hands is grain. It was sort of like an ancient trail mix without the chocolate and raisins. And so this was a snack as they would walk. Nothing wrong here. But where the violation comes in is found in verse 23. They were walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. That was what the, the Pharisees picked up on. Not that they were picking grain. That's not the problem. It was on the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees had determined that that action of crushing and blowing was reaping and threshing. Of course, it was nothing of the sort, but that's how they determined it. That, oh, since since you are going to be blowing it, that's the same thing as uh, threshing with a pitchfork. Well, that constituted work. Therefore, that was a violation of the Sabbath. That's why when they come in verse 24, they said, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful? Again, the Bible never said that a person, that this was considered work. The Bible never indicated that this was unlawful. Only the Pharisees thought it was unlawful. And I'd like to point out this characteristic of legalistic religion obsessed with fault finding. Here, the, the Pharisees are watching Jesus like a hawk, waiting for anything to happen, anything that might look like a violation. And by the way, Let's not assume that the Pharisees did this only to Jesus. Pharisees saw themselves as sort of like the law police. You know, When it came to enforcing religious law in Israel, they were the ones who had all the answers, and they were the ones who were going to tell you how it's done. So they weren't just hounding Jesus. Anybody in Israel would be under the suspicious eye of the Pharisees. They're always looking for people who are breaking the law, who are doing something wrong. Everywhere you went in Galilee, you would never be very far from a scowling Pharisee looking at you, waiting for you to slip up. Instead of being protectors and defenders of the law like they thought of themselves, they were instead religious bullies with a holier-than-thou attitude. And that's really what you find when you find this legalistic agenda. There's always excessive fault finding. After all, if religion is a matter of checking the right boxes and keeping rules, it fosters this environment where everybody is tiptoeing around, trying not to mess up. It fosters an environment where the super righteous are always spying on others, trying to catch them in foul play. One author once said, Some people find fault like there's a reward for it. And the Pharisees were masters of this. Anywhere you went, it was always the watchful eye, always trying to find fault with everyone else. Here's the thing, though. You don't have to be a legalist in the technical sense. In other words, you don't have to be a Pharisee to be a fault finder. Of course, the two go hand in hand. But I guess the question for us is, what about you? Are you always somebody who's looking at others and seeing their faults and never seeing your own? You're always kind of silently judging people because of what they wear or how they speak or you know, some external factor about them? Are you always kind of finding yourself annoyed with other people because of their faults or the faults that you perceive in them? Be careful. You might just be pointing out the speck in your brother's eye and missing the log that's in your own. Pharisees were very much like a man who once said, <clears throat> my college professor always told me, don't be quick to find fault in others. He was a great man, a terrible teacher, though. You see, that's the attitude, always finding fault. Don't be that kind of person. Don't go looking for opportunities to criticize, however and whenever possible. So the, the Pharisees excuse me, were practicing their legalistic religion, finding fault with others. But let me point out a second problem. Number two, legalistic religion makes what is good burdensome. Legalistic religion makes what is good burdensome. You know, as we go back to Matthew 23 in our minds, the same passage where Jesus talks about gnats and camels, he also said of the Pharisees, They tie up heavy, burdensome loads and lay it on other men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They had turned what God had created for good, the Sabbath, into a burden that people could not bear. God gave the Sabbath for man, and yet the Pharisees had turned it into something that uh, was a matter of fear for the people. No longer was the Sabbath to be enjoyed. Instead, it was to be observed carefully, lest you be caught violating it by the ever-observant Pharisees. Look at verses 25. Just watch as Jesus responds. The Pharisees have asked, why do your disciples violate the Sabbath? And Jesus says, verse 25, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him, how they went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests. And he gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Let's consider Jesus' answer here for a minute. He goes back to a rather obscure story. In in the story of David in 2 Samuel. Uh, and he reasons from the scriptures and by starting off by saying, Have you never read? You know, for the Pharisees, the, the Old Testament was their book. And for all of their faults, they did honor the Hebrew scriptures. So Jesus says, Let's go back to those scriptures. You remember that story about David? And, and he appeals to this example of David, who, when he was fleeing from Saul. He took the showbread from the tabernacle to feed himself and his men. Now, the bread that was placed on the the table in the tabernacle was specifically for the priests. In fact, uh, the Bible explicitly says it was for the priests and their generations. Therefore, it was not lawful for David to take it since it didn't belong to him. It belonged to the sons of Aaron. But let me note something real quick. The Bible never says it's a sin for someone else to eat the, the, ta- the bread. The Bible only says it's for the priests. So it's not necessarily a sin for David to eat it, but it's certainly, uh, it's certainly outside what's normal for the law. So as David approaches the table, as uh, David approaches the tabernacle, uh, he takes the bread of the showbread. Now, it's, it's given to him by the priest. It's not like he steals it. But Jesus is making a point with this. He says, it kind of poses as a question, leading them to answer it. You know, what about David? Have you never read the story about uh, how he took the bread of the showbread? And again, the Bible never explicitly condemns David for doing this. And the point of the story is not to show that the law is unimportant. Jesus held the law in high esteem but it is to show the weightier matters. David didn't sin. Their need overruled the normal purpose of the showbread. And had the priests withheld the sacred bread from David and his starving men on the basis of their law, you know, well, this is for us, this isn't for you, that would have been a callousness and a hardness of heart that the Lord would never approve of. Instead, they used that bread to feed them, even though it was not the normal practice. Christ then states, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And this is, I think, the heart of what Jesus is trying to get across here. God made the Sabbath to be a blessing, not to be a millstone around the necks of the people. The Sabbath was a day of rest, a day of worship. But the Pharisees had made it what had been a day of joyful worship into a day of nervous, look-over-your-shoulder law-keeping. They had transformed what God meant for good into something negative for the people. So often legalistic religion does this. Holiness is good. It's a glorious thing. We should want to our lives to reflect the character and nature of God. But legalistic religion turns holiness into law-keeping. Holiness is whatever the rules say. Holiness is You know, short hair on men. Holiness is, you know, not doing this, not going there. And on and on. So instead of the Bible's code of conduct for us, it becomes man's code of conduct for us. Whatever we've determined is right. You know, Paul describes false teachers in the Bible. And he describes them having the doctrine of demons. That's a pretty hefty charge. Here's what he says about the doctrines of demons. He says, they're forbidden, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, 1 Timothy 4.3. So one of the hallmarks of false teaching, Paul is saying here, is that they take things that God made for good, things like food and marriage, and they say, forbidden, off limits, and they make what is good burdensome. Marriage is good. Food is good if received with thanksgiving, sanctified by prayer. But false religion takes what God called good and calls it bad. And on the flip side, false religion also takes what God calls as bad and calls it good, oftentimes. So here's one of the problems it makes what is good burdensome. Let me give you a third. Legalistic religion also misplaces worship, misplaces worship. Everything becomes about the system. The rule book, instead of about the Lord, look at verse 28. Jesus says to them, therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. They apparently missed this. In fact, the Pharisees, in many ways, had missed God. He had been replaced by the tradition of the elders. So much so that to them, the Sabbath and the Pharisaic rules about the Sabbath... Determined what God could or could not do. And Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. He's supreme over it. Who are these people to dictate to the Lord of glory what the Sabbath is and who's broken it? Jesus is preeminent over all things, including the Sabbath. I think that's what he's getting at here in verse 28. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, the maker of it. Legalistic religion, however, makes a habit of dictating to God Almighty. Legalism exalts man-made rules to define status. Rather than letting God be God, people become their own rule-setters and rule enforcers. In a way, legalism can easily become idolatrous. Now, let me say real quick, I think we all have idolatrous tendencies, don't we? John Calvin once described the human heart as a factory of idols— we're constantly making our, our own. We tend to think of our way of expressing ourselves and our faith is, is the right one. And anyone who doesn't look like us is wrong. Now, I'm not saying that we are all idolaters, at least not because we have a legalistic tendency. But a system which puts an emphasis on outward law keeping, so much so that God himself is subject to it. That's a dangerous place. I read a story this week about some historic floods that happened in 1952 in the Netherlands. If you know, the Netherlands and Amsterdam and so on, the whole land is basically uh, under the water level. And so the, the dikes and dams all keep the oceans and the water out of the Netherlands. Well, these historic floods put the dikes and dams in distress so that if they broke, it could be catastrophic. Well, authorities tried to figure out how they could do this. They were um, erecting sandbag walls and so on to stave off the waters, and they called a local pastor to help do this. Well, the pastor was torn because it needed to be done immediately. It was the Sabbath day; it was the you know Sunday, and in his thinking, it was a holy day. People don't work. You know, this is a traditional kind of Reformed uh, Dutch church, and yet. The need was urgent, so he called a meeting of all the people in the church to decide what to do, and pretty much most people agreed with him that we, we should just pray and let God take care of it. But this pastor, kind of realizing that somebody needed to voice the other side of it, said this, good friends, isn't it true that Jesus himself allowed the disciples to pluck grain in the open fields when they passed on the Sabbath day? In other words, Jesus allowed his disciples to harvest to work without criticizing them. Silence fell over the assembled group. Finally, an elderly man spoke up. Pastor, I feel I must say something I've never dared to say before. It seems to me that sometimes our Lord was a bit of a liberal. Again, their thinking was here, we know how the Sabbath works. If Jesus doesn't conform to it, well, he's a bit of a liberal, I guess. Beware if you're you're thinking about religion Overrides God, because that's misplaced worship. Legalistic religion also, fourth, lacks true compassion. Lacks true compassion. The text jumps forward a little bit here in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 1. You notice it starts off, And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there with a withered hand. Now this is probably a different Sabbath. Maybe it was the very next Sabbath. We don't know. But it's another Sabbath. And the same trouble is going to come up again. The same issues are going to surface. We also see the problem of legalistic religion lacks true compassion. Instead of seeing people like Christ sees them, legalistic religion views them through the prism of law. People are evaluated and judged solely in light of the code of conduct. Beginning in chapter uh, 6, Uh, Excuse me, the beginning of this chapter jumps ahead. Again, like I said, one Sabbath. But we need to get a sense of the setting here. You notice, he entered the synagogue again. A man was there with a withered hand. So, verse 2, they watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, I pointed out in our previous studies the pattern we've seen in Mark 2. Do you remember this? There's a certain pattern we've seen over and over again. That is, Jesus does something, maybe something that might be considered controversial. The Pharisees ask an accusing question, like, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? Or, why do your disciples do what is unlawful on the Sabbath day? They ask this sort of accusing question, and then Jesus answers. What we see at the beginning of chapter 3 is that pattern is broken. It really is a startling reversal if you, because you would expect it's the same pattern. You, know, you would think the same thing would happen here. This man with a withered hand would come out. The Pharisees would ask Jesus, you know, Do you think it's right to heal a man on the Sabbath? And then Jesus heals him. But no, Jesus breaks the pattern of what they're expecting. Because you notice in the middle, Jesus asked the question. Verse 4 Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? And they were silent. So Jesus breaks the pattern here. Rather than continuing the same old charade over and over again, Jesus turns the questions on them. And now they're in the spotlight. Now they've got to give an answer. Is it right to heal on the Sabbath? Is it better to save a life or to kill? You see, in doing that, he turns the tables on them. And by the way, when he breaks this pattern that's been set in the text, it really sets a new course for the rest of the book. Because this could have gone on forever, you know, the, the Pharisees falling around accusing him, but then he turns it on them and says, "I'm asking the questions now." So Jesus, back in the synagogue on the Sabbath, probably the Capernaum synagogue, and the Bible says there was a man with a withered hand there. Now we don't know exactly what this condition was. Perhaps it was caused by disease or some kind of uh, malnutrition. One tradition says that the man had been a uh, stonemason. And years ago, it had its hand crushed under a huge stone. And since that time, his hand was always deformed and unusable. He had to be a beggar for the rest of his life. Perhaps it was something like that. Whether by accident or disease or something else, the hand was unusable. But there's a third group in the synagogue, not just Jesus, not just a man with a withered hand, but verse 2 says they watched him. Who are they? Well, we can assume based on the context and on verse 6 that these are the Pharisees. Same characters. They're there on the synagogue, uh, on the, in the synagogue on the Sabbath watching Jesus, spying on him. You notice that? It says they were there watching him closely. Again, They're scrutinizing him you also notice that the reason they're there is to to try and catch him so they can have something to accuse him of. How hypocritical, right? They're not there on the Sabbath to worship. They're not there on the Sabbath to hear the word of God taught. They're there to try and snag Jesus. And I half wonder if maybe they planted this guy with a withered hand. Maybe they were like, oh, you, excuse me, sir, with the hand. uh, Sit here on the front. We want to see what Jesus does. (laughs) And they had maybe manufactured this whole situation. I wouldn't put it beyond them. But Jesus looks and he sees the man there. Verse 3, he said to the man with the withered hand, step forward. So Jesus initiates. By the way, this is the only time I think in the Gospels, all four Gospels, where Jesus ever initiates a healing. Usually people are coming to him and asking. This is the only time Jesus says, hey, you, come here. Step forward. He does. Center stage now in this dramatic scene. Now Jesus starts to ask the questions. He begins to confront the Pharisees on their heart. And what, what's revealed here is how heartless legalistic religion can be. Let's assume for a second that the Pharisees did plant him there. They see this man only as a tool for catching Jesus. They could care less about his hand. They could care less about whether or not he gets healed, ever. He's just a tool in their plan, their scheme, to try and catch Jesus. And perhaps Jesus knew it was a setup, but he walks right into it. But rather than springing the trap, he turns it on the Pharisees and shows their lack of compassion and all of its sickening detail. He says in verse 4, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? See, to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was a holy day. It was to be kept in strict observance of their traditions. But Jesus frames it a different way. Sabbath is a day for doing good. Sabbath is a day for doing good, not evil. Clearly God wanted man to do what is good. Clearly God wants a life to be saved, not to be killed. So no one in the synagogue, including the man on display, was in danger of death. But I think Jesus' words here are meant to convict. Especially this phrase, to save a life or to kill. Like, what's he talking about there? Well, a few verses later in verse 6, we find out that the Pharisees and the Herodians were plotting on the Sabbath day to kill Jesus. So Jesus is kind of, even in his question, is sort of hinting at, is it right for me to heal a man on the Sabbath? Or is it right for you to go scheme a person's death? I mean, what do you think makes God happy? Do you think God is happy when when you keep all the rules and yet plot somebody's murder on the Sabbath? Or is he happy that someone is healed on the Sabbath? Sabbath is for good, not for evil. That's the point Jesus is getting across here. But the Pharisees show no compassion. In fact, you notice what it says in verse 4? They kept silent. And when Jesus, verse 5, looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And as he stretched out, his hand was restored as whole as the other. So Jesus looks around, and the Bible says he's angry. These are very strong words. He's anger and grieved in his heart. Because you notice they're silent, and their silence condemns them. Because they can't say the obvious answer that yes no it's, we should do good on the sabbath because that would agree with jesus and they're trying to catch jesus so they don't say anything jesus says you can't even answer the question are we supposed to do good on the sabbath these people are heartless and cruel having no compassion for this man at all you know if our faith does not produce compassion for others what does that say about our faith I like how James Edwards, in his commentary, frames this question. He writes, the test of all theology and morality is either passed or failed by one's response to the weakest and most defenseless members of society. So the stunning indictment of the Pharisees is their silence. They refuse to answer the question. Jesus is filled with anger. There's only a few times in the Bible, by the way, when Jesus is said to be angry. This is one of them at the heartless lack of compassion on the part of the Pharisees. Sadly, this is not unexpected. Legalistic religion is not known for compassion, is it? In fact, quite the opposite. The rules are supreme. Here's the thing I want to I mention, though, is that you don't have to be a card-carrying Pharisee to be a legalist or to lack compassion. I think, I think oftentimes, sometimes... I'll just say sometimes. Sometimes we lack compassion, don't we? We fail to see things from another perspective. We, we walk by many hurts and pains without ever stopping to really show that we care. Just as one example, let me tell you this story. It's about a famous preacher. Very well known. He was invited to speak at a conference for a week, and he was going to be the headline speaker. So on the first day, of the conference. a gentleman approached the preacher, shook his hand and said, oh, I'm so delighted to meet you. I've been looking forward to this conference for weeks. Oh, I've, I've wanted to hear you preach. You're my favorite preacher. I've been wanting to hear you for years and years. This to me is a dream come through. I'm lo- really looking forward to your messages. Preacher thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm feeling good about this. So he got up to preach on the first night and he, his eyes found that man in the crowd. There he was, you know, pen in hand, Bible open. Within five minutes of preaching, the man was fast asleep. The preacher was a little annoyed at this. kind of thought, you know, well, maybe he just had a long trip. Maybe he had a long drive to get here. He's just really tired the first day. Every single night, it was the same. Five minutes into the sermon, the man was asleep. The preacher started getting really pretty upset about this. In fact, he was feeling a little bit of bitterness rising up in him. Here's this guy, you know, I don't know what he thinks he's saying, but... Clearly, if he cared about the messages, if he cared about this conference, he would at least stay awake. So there was quite a bit of anger in this preacher. Then on the last night of the conference, the man's wife came up to him and said, Thank you so much for your messages this week. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry about my husband falling asleep. You see, he was just diagnosed with cancer. He's on a really strong medication. It makes him very, very sleepy. And this was the one thing he wanted to do before he died, was come hear you. knife in the heart because again he just sees from his perspective here's a guy that's not paying any attention no compassion there here's the rest of the story though it does make a difference fortunately legalistic religion is not heavy in compassion finally the last problem legalistic religion often masks an unchanged and evil heart Jesus heals the the man with the the deformed hand right in the midst of all of them. And you notice the next verse does not say the Pharisees and the crowds went out amazed, astonished at Jesus' work. Look at what verse 6 says. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Rather than being filled with conviction over their sin, rather than amazement over Jesus' power, rather than joy over the healing of a a handicapped man, Pharisees are filled with anger and hatred. Sadly, those who are sometimes most zealous for the rules, model legalists like the Pharisees, are actually guilty of the very things they hate in others. Legalistic religion sometimes serves as a cover for sin. Rather than run to God's grace because of their sin, they sink deeper into following the rules and deeper into their own sin. Now, to a first-century Jew, hearing me say that would be shocking because to them, the Pharisees represented the most God-fearing, law-keeping, scripture-memorizing men of God. If anybody was righteous in Israel, certainly it was the Pharisees. Yet, here they are, plotting the death of an innocent man. The law-keeping was just a facade. Underneath, they had an unchanged and evil heart. Notice in verse 6, the Pharisees went out immediately. They didn't wait. They went out immediately and plotted with the Herodians. Now, we don't know much about the Herodians or who they were. They weren't a religious group like the Pharisees or Sadducees. They were probably a political group, probably somehow aligned with Herod the Great or Herod's sons, which means they were probably pretty Hellenistic, that is Greek-speaking and influenced by Greek culture. Normally, Greek culture and the Pharisees did not mix. Normally, the Herodians and Pharisees would not be friends, but apparently their hatred was so strong for Jesus that it brought together opposing parties. Like the old saying goes, the enemy of the enemy, of my enemy, is my friend. And that was the case with the Herodians and the Pharisees. Teamed up. Underneath, though, these fastidious, law-keeping, religious Jews was an evil heart that wanted to destroy God's own son. Be careful, because legalistic religion sometimes can shield evil underneath. I could point out to you several high-profile churches that were well known as being really, you know, we are sticking to the word, we are, you know, conservative, we are uh just you know, by the books churches. That it turned out years later was discovered that the pastor was involved in immorality or other gross sins. And I have to wonder if maybe some of that pulpit banging and uh, Bible flinging was just a bit of a show to cover up their unchanged and evil heart. And I don't just mean that as a rebuke of others, but to warn us that sometimes, all the time, law-keeping is no substitute for the grace of God which changes a heart. Well, we see in these passages, these two accounts a lot of gnat straining and a lot of camel swallowing, and it might come across as a pretty discouraging message. You know what's wrong with legalism? Here's the problems. But in the moments we have left, just a few of them, I want to turn our attention to James chapter one verse twenty-seven. The Bible says there, pure, re- pure and undefiled religion is this: to visit the orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So if legalistic religion is all of this, it's got all these problems, it's a mask for evil and so on, well, what ought pure and undefiled religion to look like? What should our faith look like? Well, it would be easy enough to say it should look the opposite, right? It should look like Christ himself. So let me give you five more thoughts here as we close on what pure religion should look like. Number one, pure religion understands and shows grace Understands and shows grace. Rather than being legalistic in, te- in terms of law and seeing one's approval before God as a matter of outward performance, we understand that we're sinners who need God's grace and in turn show God's grace. We're not Pharisees who are looking for somebody to beat up or to knock around the ears because they're not as holy as we are. We ought to be showing grace. Chuck Swindoll, years ago, wrote a little book titled Grace Awakening, which was, he saw it as a corrective to some of the legalism he saw in churches. The subtitle of the book, though, says it well. Believing in grace is one thing. Living it is another. Perhaps we're better with believing or talking about grace than we are showing it, living it. Pure religion understands and shows grace. Number two, pure religion rejoices in what God has provided. Now, this doesn't mean we rejoice in things that are sinful, obviously. But in all the things that God has given as, for us freely to enjoy, we should freely enjoy them. Again, sometimes legalism is, is constantly slapping you know, wicked or sinful on things which God never explicitly calls wicked or sinful. Again, you know, you go back a couple of generations, and you know things like roller skates or you know, uh, you know, records or whatever, called sinful in and of themselves, just because they're new, um, or because maybe they've been used in ways that uh, people thought were inappropriate. But we should rejoice in what God has provided. Number three, pure religion obeys and honors Christ, obeys and honors Christ. So again, please hear me. I'm not saying that we should just replace legalism with license. Do what you want. You know. Everything's free. Everything is permissible. No. We ought to live, but our code of conduct is not some, some man-made rule book. It's the scriptures. It's Christ as our example. And to be honest, if we follow Christ's example and let the Holy Spirit transform our lives, we'll find ourselves being far more holy in our conduct than even the Pharisees were again the transformed heart makes the difference pure religion obeys and honors Christ number four pure religion views others with compassion how's your religion look more like a Pharisee or more like Christ with compassion to others compassion to all number five pure religion is not a show pure religion is not a show it's not a, a smokescreen to cover up what we're really doing, as the Pharisees sometimes used it. It's not an ostentatious display of how much better I am than you are, as the Pharisees sometimes did. No, it's not a show. It's in truth. You know, If we're going to be those who follow the religion of Christ, if you could call it that, then our lives should be characterized by these qualities. Not by that which defines legalistic religion may our lives be reflective of pure religion which understands and shows grace rejoices in what god has provided obeys and honors christ views others with compassion isn't a, a game a mask of hypocrisy